This program is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. Okay, we continue with colors. The shades of color that John mentions in Revelation are white, red, scarlet, black, pale and green, blue, and purple. Gold is another color. It appears in this book numerous times, either as a descriptive adjective or noun. For some of the colors mentioned in Scripture, the context appears to supply a symbolic meaning. For instance, white is the color that denotes holiness, purity, victory, and justice. God told the people of Israel, Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. At his transfiguration, Jesus' clothes became dazzling white, and the angel of the Lord at Jesus' tomb was dressed in white apparel. In the Apocalypse, the robes of the saints in heaven are white. The rider on the white horse is victorious and is accompanied by angels dressed in white garments and riding on white horses. The Son of Man, seated on a white cloud with a crown of gold on his head and a sickle in his hand, appears as a victorious conqueror who reaps a harvest. And last, the color of God's throne is white to express judgment and justice. Of the colors John mentions in Revelation, white, red, and black are notable. Whereas purple attests to wealth, gold connotes heaven's perfection, other colors occur infrequently in this book and their context failed to clarify their use. Next, creatures. From the animal world, John has selected numerous representations to illustrate each with its own characteristics. The four-footed animals are a horse for riding purposes, a lamb for slaughter, a lion for its devouring mouth, a bear for its powerful feet, an ox for its strength, and the leopard for its speed. The reptiles are the serpent representing Satan, the scorpion because of its sting, and frogs to depict evil spirits. The birds of the, are the eagle for its extended wingspan, and the vultures that gorge themselves on cadavers. The insects are represented by the locusts to portray a plague, and all these creatures in their own way add to the symbolism of revelation. Now the conclusion. No other book in the New Testament as the book of Revelation has as many occurrences of the concept great. I think there are some 80 or more. It is expressed by the Greek word mega and translated variously as loud, huge, or intense. What John sees can be depicted only in terms of size, volume, intensity, and importance. Angels with loud voices so that every creature is able to hear them. Huge hailstones weighing a hundred pounds each. Intense heat, great authority, and Babylon the Great. Nevertheless, not every detail is symbolic and in need of interpretation. As we explain the content of Revelation, we keep in mind the central message of a passage and consider details as pictorial and descriptive. The message is primary, the details secondary unless the message demands an interpretation of the individual parts, we should refrain from looking for a deeper meaning for each component. Not all the information in the Apocalypse is symbolic. If the writer states that the grass is green, green it is. 
And that the breastplate is either blue or yellow, it's either blue or yellow. It merely describes the object. When the words green, blue, yellow occur only once in a given context, we have no basis to suspect symbolical language. Other passages relate to history, such as the author's exile on the island of Patmos on the Lord's Day, 1 verses 9 and 10, the letters to the seven churches, chapters 2 and 3, and the concluding verses of the last chapter. An allusion to history occurs in the birth of the male child that is snatched up to heaven, 12 verse 2, uh, verse 5. John presents the rest of the apocalypse in visions introduced by the repetitive phrase, I saw. The conclusion we must draw is that the numbers, images, and expressions of greatness must be interpreted as symbols that present the idea of totality, fullness, and perfection. Much of John's symbolism derives from the Old Testament scriptures and from the ecclesiastical context in which he spent his time. Let us note that the Jewish mind of the first century received and presented information by means of pictures, illustrations, and symbols. By contrast, the Greek mind of that era dealt with abstract concepts, which is analyzed and explained with clear verbal exactness. Although John has spent considerable time in the Greek environment and wrote his book in the Greek language, his composition reflects an Eastern mindset that communicates revelation with the aid of pictorial images. And these images must be viewed in their totality and not with respect to each individual detail. John writes the Apocalypse from an Old Testament perspective. And now we're going to look at the Old Testament in the book of Revelation. By one count, the 404 verses in Revelation divulge some 500 quotations and allusions to the Old Testament. And all you have to do is go to Nesalaland, I use the 27th edition and the United Bible Society edition, the 4th edition. And I also note that Bruce Metzger says that of the 404 verses in the Apocalypse, 278 verses allude to an Old Testament passage. Okay, let's look at these. <clears throat> 1 verse 7, Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, and those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Taken from Daniel 7 verse 13, and Zechariah 12 verse 10. We move on to 2 verse 27, He will rule them with an iron rod, and as the earthen vessels are broken to pieces. Coming straight from Psalm 2 verse 9. In 4 verse 8, we read, Holy, Holy, Holy Lord God Almighty. Isaiah 6 verse 7, and also look at Amos 3:13. Next, 6 verse 16, And they said to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us. Taken straight from Hosea 10 verse 8. 7 verse 16, And they will neither hunger nor thirst any more, neither will the sun beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. Isaiah 49, 10. 7 verse 17, And God will wipe every tear away from their eyes. Isaiah 25, 8. 15, 3a, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. From Psalm 111, verse 2. 15.3b, just and true are your ways, kings of the nation, king of the nations. From Deuteronomy 32, 4, Psalm 145, 1 and 7, and Jeremiah 10, verse 7. 
15 verse 4. Who does not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All the nations will come and worship before you. Jeremiah 10, 7 and Psalm 86 verse 9. Three more. 19 verse 15. And he will shepherd them with an iron rod. Psalm 2 verse 9. Then 20 verse 9, fire came down from heaven and devoured them, taken from 2 Kings 1 verse 10 and 12. And last, 21 verse 7, I shall be a God to him and he shall be a son to me. 2 Samuel 7 14. John alludes to, neither, to nearly every book in the Old Testament canon. Most of the references come from the Psalms, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. In addition, there are five books of Moses, the historical books of Joshua, Judges, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, the wisdom literature of Job, Proverbs, Song of Songs, the prophet, Jeremiah, Lamentations, and all the minor prophets without Haggai. So apart from Ruth, Ecclesiastes, and Haggai, John alludes to passages from the entire Old Testament. He proves that he had a thorough knowledge of the Scriptures by alluding to the New Testament in every chapter of the book. Stop for just a moment. When John was told by Roman soldiers that he was in exile, when he left his home in Ephesus, John didn't say to the Roman soldiers, hold on a moment, I want to take my library along, I have all these scrolls, and he put them all under his arms, and now I'm ready to go. And then he went in exile to Patmos, a lonely island, about 10 miles in length from north to south, and about a half a mile wide. Banishment. And then John took down these scrolls, and he started writing, and he looked up, and he had to roll and roll a scroll to get through the exact passage, and put it away, and then another one. He was busy as could be writing this book. And the answer, of course, is don't be foolish. A Roman soldier wouldn't allow him to take scrolls along. Certainly not. John had the computer going as he was writing. It was all memorized. And now you can say, well, John, you're not quite accurate in this particular quote. Well, what do you expect? He is relying on his memory and is writing it down. And don't forget the man was in his 90s. Can you be a bit gracious to him? <laughs> That's how I see John on the island of Patmos. Filled with the Holy Spirit who called to his remembrance all that Jesus had said and done and many other things. And John knew his Old Testament inside out. Okay. Jesus mentions the devil and his angels being cursed and consigned to eternal fire. Matthew 25. See, now we're talking about the New Testament. And John also is fully acquainted with the New Testament. Matthew 25:41. John refers to the dragon or devil and his angels being cast out of heaven and hurled to the earth. You find that in chapter 12, verse 7 through 9. He was familiar with most books of the New Testament, chiefly the Gospels, Acts, and many of Paul's epistles, Hebrews, the epistles of James, Peter, John, and Jude. The writer of the Apocalypse was also acquainted with apocryphal literature. He alludes to 2 Maccabees, Tobit, 2 Baruch, Sirach, Wisdom of Solomon, and the Psalms of Solomon. We do not expect that John in exile had access to all the scrolls of biblical and extra-biblical lit literature on the island of Patmos. 
nor do we expect John to roll or unroll a particular scroll to find passages for the writing of his book called Revelation. Instead, we infer that his allusions and direct quotations in the Apocalypse that he relied on, the, on his memory for the teaching of the Scriptures. From beginning to end, the entire fabric of Revelation is laced with thoughts and expressions taken from God's written Word. In it we see the artistic handiwork of God, the primary author of the Bible, and John serves him as a secondary author filled with the Holy Spirit to pen the last volume of the canon. Charles Haddon Spurgeon used to say, you people must learn to speak Biblis. That is, Bible language. It should be so familiar to you that you don't have to look it up. You can quote it. The last book in the New Testament is also known as a doxological volume for at least numerous hymns and songs grounded in the Scriptures. They are the hymns sung by the four living creatures, 4 verse 8. The twenty-four elders, 4 11. The creatures and the elders, 5 verses 9 through 10. The angels, 5 12. All living beings, 5 13. The great multitude, 7 10. The angels, elders and creatures, 7 14. The saints in white robes, 7, verses 15 to 17. The seventh angel, 11, verse 15. The 24 elders, 11, verses 17 through 18. The victorious saints, 15 through the verses 3 to 4. The third angel and the voice from the altar, 16, verses 5, 6, 7. An angel with great authority, 18 verses 2 and 3. Another heavenly voice, 18 the verses 4 through 8. A great multitude, 19 verses 1 through 3. The 24 elders and a voice from the throne, 19 verses 4 and 5. And a great multitude, 19 verse 6 and 8. We conclude that Revelation is truly the capstone of the entire canon of Scripture. As such, the book must be seen in the light of the rest of the Bible. The Apocalypse unveils the teachings of God's revealed Word by focusing attention on the coming of the Messiah. The first coming of the Christ is symbolized in the birth of the male child who was snatched up to heaven. 12 verses 5 and 13. But fulfillment of Jesus' second coming is nowhere indicated. I say this again. Fulfillment of Jesus' second coming is nowhere in the book of Revelation indicated. The book lists the promise of His return and the fervent plea of the Spirit, Holy Spirit, and the bride, the church, to come quickly. You find that in Revelation 22, verse 17. Stop for just a moment. Any questions thus far? It all makes sense? Okay. Yes. When you look at the index in the back and look up the name Hendrickson... Whole columns, every chapter, and many times in every chapter, I quote Hendrickson and refer to him. Yes, I am right on target. Yes. Any other questions? Good. We move on to the authorship. The authorship. And first, we take up the external evidence. Nowhere in the Gospel of John. Is there any reference to John, the son of Zebedee, Jesus' faithful disciple and apostle? Similarly, the three epistles attributed to John omit the name of the beloved disciple, although in two of them the writer refers to himself as the elder, 
And I'm referring you to 2 John 1 and 3 John 1. We could say that the author excludes his personal name out of modesty and refers to himself only as elder because of his advanced age in his 90s, if you please. But in Revelation, the author is not afraid to use his personal name, for he identifies himself four times as John, and even says, I, John. You find that in chapter 1, the verses 1, 4, and 9, and also in 22, verse 8. Could one and the same person pen literature of three different genres, gospel, epistles, and apocalypse? The word choice, language, and diction of the gospel and the epistle is quite similar, but that of the apocalypse is completely dissimilar to the other writings. Who is the author of Revelation? The New Testament lists at least five people with the name John. John the Baptist, John the son of Zebedee, Simon Peter's father, John Mark and John, who belonged to the high priest family, Acts 4, 6. The name was common in Judaism, which in Hebrew was Jochanan, in Greek, Johannes or Johannes. Could there be two different people with, with the same name responsible for the writing of the Johannine literature? The early church fathers ascribed the book of Revelation to John the Apostle. Thus, Justin Martyr, in the first part of the second century, about the year 135, wrote that, quote, There was a certain man with us whose name was John, one of the apostles of Christ, who prophesied by a revelation that was made to him. Notice this is now 45 years after John wrote. No, look. Hold on, we're going to correct that right now. This was written 40 years, 95 to 135, 40 years after John wrote the Apocalypse. The author of the Muratorian Fragment, dated approximately 175, attributed revelation to John, whom he considers to be an apostle. About the year 180, Irenaeus commented that he knew of persons who had seen the author of the Apocalypse. We surmise that the persons whom he had in mind were Papias and Polycarp, both disciples of the Apostle John. He also mentioned that John wrote during the reign of Emperor Domitian. 81 to 96. And Melito, the bishop of Sardis, and contemporary of Irenaeus, composed a long, no longer extant commentary on the apostle, pardon me, on the apocalypse of John. Writers in the first few decades of the third century, and I mentioned Clement of Alexandria, Tertullian, Origen, Hippolytus, and Cypriot, credit the apostle John with the authorship of Revelation. In brief, support is strong for Johannine authorship from early writers of the 2nd until the middle of the 3rd century. Attacks on the integrity of Revelation in that era by the Allegi of Asia Minor and the, following, the followers of Gaius in Rome are insignificant. A personal illustration, if you don't mind. We, as a family, I was a boy 17 years of age, immigrated from Holland in 1948 to Canada. I finished high school and went on to Kelvin College and Kelvin Seminary in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And then in 1958 was accepted as a graduate student at the Free University of Amsterdam, in those days still conservative and evangelical. Before we left, father and mother told me, now when you come to Holland, you go to grandfather and say hello and tell grandfather about us. So dutifully and faithfully, I went to grandfather. 
Let me tell you that grandfather was born in 1868. Keep the date in mind. And grandfather's first remark was, I am 90 years of age. And his second remark was, I am so thankful that my grandson is a student at the Free University of Amsterdam. Because, here it comes, I remember as a boy, 12 years of age, that Abram Kuyper, in October of 1880, opened the Free University with five students. And opponents of Abram Kuyper had put a sign on the door of the building where they met saying, He who enters here abandon all hope. Taken from Dante. And father, grandfather told me a few items which I now relate to you. Notice now, grandfather, the eyewitness, the ear witness, 12 years of age, 1880 and now it is 121 years later and I am telling you now there's an eye and ear witness but as a messenger now will you please apply that to the book of Revelation John wrote in the year 95 now add 120 years will you do the math for me <laughs> okay, anyone else? Pardon me? 215, make it 16, will you? Sure. <laughs> Who were the writers in 215, 220? Origen, Tertullian, Clement of Alexandria, and others. Now, why do I say so? Well, I merely go back to Irenaeus, who in the year 85 in southern France said, I know of disciples of John the Apostle, meaning Epapius and Polycarp. I talked to them and they told me. And there's the eyewitness. Epapius, Polycarp, Telling ironies who puts it down on paper. Now, do you need any more proof? We continue. <clears throat> In the third century, Dionysius of Alexandria, who was active from 231 to 264, questioned the, the firmly established authorship of John the Apostle. He had traveled to Ephesus where he heard of two graves that were claimed to be the burial places of John. By the way, he was a tourist and he came back after a couple of weeks to go to Ephesus and now he goes back to Alexandria, Egypt and he said, I know all about it. You have these people, even today. He assumed that one of these belonged to the presbyter John and the other to the apostle by that same name. Dionysius found no reference to apostolic authorship and revelation. He had studied the word choice, diction, style, and language of the Apocalypse, compared it with the Gospel of John and the Epistles of John, and concluded that not the Apostle, but John the Elder was the author of this book. He did so on the basis of a statement made by Papias more than a century earlier, and later cited by Eusebius in 325. Here's the statement. But if ever anyone came who had followed the presbyters, I inquired into the words of the presbyters, what Andrew or Philip, Peter or Philip or Thomas or James or John or Matthew or any other of the Lord's disciples had said, and what Aristion and the presbyter John, the Lord's disciples, were saying, for I did not suppose that information from books would help me so much as the word of a living and surviving voice. End of quote. Now, what do we do with it? 
We read here about John, the Lord's disciple, and we read here about the presbyter John. Can't you see there are two people? The answer is no, not so. Read it correctly. The Greek clearly indicates that Papias uses the past tense. Had said. And describes the apostles who had passed on. And the present tense were, in the Greek, were, are saying. For those who were still living, with the repetition of the phrase of Presbyter John, Papias wants to communicate that he is thinking of the same person, namely John the disciple and the apostle of the Lord, who was the last of the twelve apostles still alive. There's more. In the early church, a particular chiliastic, you may call it premillennial if you wish, chiliastic view met opposition. Some writers, including Papias, Justin Martyr, and Irenaeus, held to the view of a thousand-year millennial reign of the Lord on this earth. But the Alexandrian leaders, Dionysius and Eusebius, rejected this teaching. They repudiated the chiliastic view, and particularly Lily Eusebius cast aspersions on Papias' character. That was not nice. What does this have to do with the authorship of Revelation? It lent support to the assumption that the author of the Apocalypse was not the apostle but the presbyter John. To Dionysius' credit, we know that he regarded this presbyter holy and inspired. But his argument is weakened by his own statement that there were other persons in the province of Asia who bore the same name, the name John. He claims, I hold that there have been many persons in the same, of the same name as John the Apostle, who for the love they bore him were glad to take also the same name after him. But writers in the early centuries of the Christian era know nothing of someone bearing the name John the Apostle, except the son of Zebedee. In addition, Dionysius' argument is weakened still further because he received the information on the two graves by hearsay. In other words, he did not even see these graves on his two-week trip to Ephesus. The early church fathers are unable to confirm that the person called John the Presbyter existed. In fact, Dionysius expresses only an assumption. This is how he puts it. But I think that there was a certain other John among those who were in Asia. End of quote. By contrast, we believe that the only person named John who could address the churches with the authority revealed in the Apocalypse is John the Apostle of Jesus Christ. Near the end of the 4th century, Jerome ascribed the last two epistles of John not to the Apostle, but to the Presbyter. Yet he affirms that the Apostle wrote both the Gospel and the Apocalypse. Further, in his advanced age, John could either identify himself as the Elder, as we have it in 2 John 1 and 3 John 1, or use his given name as he does in Revelation. No one but John could claim unchallenged authority in the church near the end of the first century. The external evidence remains firm because the criticism of Dionysius rests chiefly on the dogmatic basis of the millennial dispute, a multiplicity of people with the name John, and an unconfirmed report concerning true grace reportedly belonging to John. Now, the internal evidence. <clears throat> internal evidence. Three times in chapter 1, the verses 1, 4, and 9, and once in chapter 22, verse 8, the author identifies himself as John. He speaks as a person with unquestionable authority, who is well known to all the churches in Asia, that is, western Turkey. <clears throat> Banished to the rocky island of Patmos, to the west 
of the port city Miletus near Ephesus, the writer uses only the name John. In his banishment, he pens the last book of the canon in an Aramaic type of Greek. For the question concerning the time of John's exile, consult the, dic- the sections on the date, and we'll pick that up in a moment. If we presume that John wrote his work near the end of the mission's reign in the year 95, he reigned till the year 96, we infer that he himself was an elderly gentleman. It may be that in his old age he reverted increasingly to his use of his mother's mother tongue Aramaic. When bilingual or multilingual people become old, they often resort to speaking the native tongue. John is no exception. An objection to this theory is that John's gospel and epistles composed a few years prior to the apocalypse reveal acceptably good Greek free from unusual constructions found in the Revelation. But notice the difference in genre. The gospel is a straightforward account of the life and teaching of Jesus. But Revelation is an unveiling of heavenly scenes. William Henderson writes, quote, In this connection, let us not forget that when John wrote the last book of the Bible, his soul was in such a deep, a condition of deep inner emotion, surprise and ecstasy, for he was in his spirit, that his earlier Jewish training may have exerted itself more forcibly and may even have influenced his style and language. End of quote. We suspect that in Ephesus, where John composed the Gospel and the Epistles, he had capable scribes assisting him. Employing scribes in the writing of letters and documents was a common practice during the first century for Paul and Peter even mentioned their amanuenses by name, Paul refers to Tertius, Romans 16:22, and Peter mentions Silas, 1 Peter 5, verse 12. But as an exile, John was alone and had to rely on his own authorial ability and thus wrote Greek unaided by native speakers. The vocabulary of Revelation differs decisively from that of the rest of John's writings, and this point is crucial in regard to the question of authorship. Comparing the Gospel of John with the Apocalypse, Dionysius of Alexandria rightly commented that while the Gospel and the Epistle of John had much in common, this could not be said of the Gospel and the Apocalypse. Said he, quote, But the Apocalypse is utterly different from and foreign to these writings. It's scarcely, so to speak, has even a syllable in common with them. Uh, May I say that exaggeration is an art all by itself. Uh, Slightly enhanced, to put it differently. I continue. This is a gross exaggeration. For substantiating evidence can be shown that there are many similarities. The expression, the word of God, in 1913, is an indisputable reference to the introductory verse of the fourth gospel. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, John 1.1. And a succession of terms in both gospel and apocalypse are the same. You have water of life, the word vine, the word shepherd, the verb to overcome, the noun light, love, and the verb to witness. In his zeal to disclaim apostolic authorship for the apocalypse, Dionysius has overstated his case and severely impaired his argument. Quote, Of the 913 words used in the Apocalypse, 416 are found also in the Gospel, but the words common to both books are either of the most ordinary type or are shared by other New Testament writers. 
End of quote. <coughs> Difference concern such matters as the spelling of the term Jerusalem and the synonym for the word land. They are insignificant because they convey the same idea. Of greater significance, of greater divergence is the style of John's Gospel and the Apocalypse. Dionysius of Alexandria compared the style of each book and commented the Gospel was written in faultless Greek. <laughs> now, come, now, tone it down a little bit, will you? <laughs> Which illustrates John's greatest literary skill. Get the point? With respect to diction, reasoning, and constructions. Now, if you said that about Hebrews, I would say, Amen. You're right on target. If you say it about John's Gospel, not quite. Concerning the author of Revelation, he wrote, quote, I observe his style and that the use of the Greek language is not accurate, but that he employs barbarous idioms in some places committing downright solecisms. End of quote. A solecism is a word which is nowhere found in all of literature. Dion <coughs> Dionysius is the first of many writers who have noted grammatical inconsistencies and rough structural breaks in the Apocalypse. These solecisms, that is, words occurring only once in an all of literature, are obvious in the Greek text, but in translations fail to appear. They are grammatical errors. First of the nominative case that follows the preposition apo. And for you Greek scholars, apo is a preposition, always takes the case of the genitive which governs the genitive case from him who is and was and who is to come. 1 verse 4. Next, the nominative case stands in opposition to other cases as is evident in the greeting from Jesus Christ the faithful witness. 1 5. Here the Greek preposition governs the genitive case of the nouns Jesus Christ. But the next three words that should have been in the genitive are instead in the nominative case. And third, although in translation we notice no break in the sentence to him who loves us and set us free from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, chapter 1, 5b and 6a, in Greek the author writes two participles, loves and set, followed by a finite verb, made. These are just a few, first few inconsistencies of numerous others in the rest of Revelation. These discrepancies are not the case of ignorance or a lapse of memory, but must be ascribed to John's deliberate intent to illustrate. The writer breaks the grammatical rule of presenting the genitive case after the preposition apo in 1 verse 4, but in the next clause and from the seven spirits that are before his throne, he correctly writes the genitive. Indeed, he uses this preposition 31 times in the Apocalypse and in every instance it is written correctly, with the exception of the above-mentioned clause. We must conclude that John deliberately writes Aramaic Greek to approximate Hebrew idiom even to the point of breaking Greek grammatical rules. Hence, the phrase from him who is relates to the structure of the Hebrew verb I am in Exodus 3.14. In fact, the Greek translation of the Old Testament has this expression, Ha-aimi ha-on, I am the one who is. And I'm going by the Septuagint of Exodus 3.14.
And in the Greek text of Psalm 118, 26, in the Septuagint, 117, verse 26, the expression, the one who is coming, appears. The saying, who is, who was, who is to come, with the addition of the Almighty, occurs as a fourfold attestation of God's deity, eternity, presence, and power, in 1 verse 8 and 4 verse 8. These four names of God are in John's mind as indeclinable nouns, not from a Greek perspective, but from a Semitic perspective. And last, Jewish people were familiar with interpreting the Hebrew Bible aided by Aramaic Targums, commentaries, in synagogue worship. There the rabbi interpreted the Pentateuch and the prophets from the Targums, Aramaic translations of the Old Testament scriptures. The author of the Apocalypse has an enviable knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures, and he reflects it in the style of this last book of the canon. Steeped in the wording of the Old Testament prophets, John purposely adopts their mode of expression even when it results in faulty Greek grammar. Third, the characteristics. John's literary works disclose certain characteristics of relatedness. One example of stylistic similarity is the coordinate clauses in John's literature. That is, while Luke composes generally, his gospel and acts in a subordinate style of several clauses, John adopts a coordinate style of short, simple clauses that often begin with the conjunction and. This is true especially in the narrative sections of the gospel and throughout Revelation. John reflects a Semitic style of writing and Luke, a Hellenistic one, that at times borders on classical Greek. I'm going to take time out right now. Open Luke to Luke chapter 1, will you? Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. Look at the first four verses. By the way, these four verses constitute one lengthy sentence in Greek. Now, I'll try to read it without taking a breath. I may be running out. Here it goes. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Now, that's Greek. The man knows how to write one sentence. The NIV has two. Now go with me to John's Gospel and I invite you to turn with me to chapter 1. Chapter 1. Look at verse 14. And the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. And we have seen His glory the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, we have doctored it up a little bit. Look at the Greek, and, 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 and. We call that coordinate Greek. Luke writes subordinate Greek. And there is a world of difference. Now, <clears throat> let's look at Characteristics. Jo- Joanine Rev- uh, literature in all three genres, gospel, epistles, and revelation, displays a remarkable similarity in structure. A characteristic relevant to some parts of the gospel is a spiral approach 
to the material at hand. An example is the prologue in which John develops a continuous theme by repeating his description of the Logos as is evidenced in chapter 1, verse 1. The Word was God and the Word was with God. And in verse 14, the Word of God dwelt among us. His reference to John, that is, the Baptist, who came to testify, is referred to in 1, verses 6 through 9, and then once, once more in verse 15. The coming of the Christ in 1, verse 10 through 11, and again in 15b and 17. The same spiral configuration marks the so-called farewell discourses of Jesus in chapters 14, 15, 16, and 17. For example, John writes about the Holy Spirit, who is the Counselor and the Spirit of Truth sent in Jesus' name by the Father, John 14, 16, and 26. He repeats this information in the two succeeding chapters, John 15, 26, and John 16, the verses 7 and 13. With repetitive phraseology and increasing crescendo, he writes about the father-son relationship culminating with Jesus' high priestly prayer in chapter 17. We also note a spiral approach in the composition. The concepts of sin and love exemplify this spiraling style. Finally, the apocalypse is filled with reiteration of themes. For one thing, for one, think of the repetitive, rep, excuse me, for one, think of the repetitive elements in the seven letters, the seven trumpets, the seven plagues. The characteristics in the Johannine works are unique and seem to point to one and the same author. They form a substructure on which each individual genre is built and which hints at an identification of their author. We realize that not every question has been answered and not every problem has been addressed, yet that which is presented aids us in establishing the identity of the writer of the gospel and of the apocalypse. The conclusion in modern times, many scholars have rejected the apostolic authorship of Revelation. They do so, among other things, on the basis of the different genres with respect to the fourth gospel and the apocalypse. Can one author compose books of different genres? The answer is affirmative and can be proven with many examples, both from ancient and modern times, to mention only the works of C.S. Lewis. In addition, we note that John's apocalypse is unlike other Jewish apocalypses in regard to authorship. Apocalypses are pseudonymous, but by his own testimony, John is the author of Revelation. He proposes not in the name of someone else, but in his own name, comments Donald Guthrie an evangelical New Testament scholar, British, says, quote, This was a departure from tradition which could have arisen only through the conviction that the spirit of prophecy had once again become active and that there was no need for, for pseudonymous devices. In... Footnote 50, I would like to call attention to a remark made by Leon Morris, Australian New Testament scholar, conservative evangelical. Note about four or five lines down in footnote 50. Are you with me? You read Leon Morris in his commentary on Revelation in the uh, Tyndale New Testament commentary series correctly observes, quote, later scholars have scarcely done more than repeat 
and elaborate the position Dionysius took up. In other words, without comment, he takes the wind off everybody's sails. They're finished. Other scholars take a neutral position by saying that the author was a Jewish Christian prophet called John. Forget it. Okay, but because of, a, of the solid external and supportive internal evidence favoring apostolic authorship, Many scholars are persuaded that John, son of Zebedee, wrote the Apocalypse, among others. And here I mention Donald Guthrie, William Hendrickson, Philip S.Q. Hughes, George Eldon Ladd, Leon Morris, Merrill Tenney, Robert Thomas, and many others. Leonard Goppel concurs. And this is what he says, quote, On the Revelation of John, for the interpretation of the entire book, it is important to note that the seer, in conformity with the Old Testament, of which the, the description of his revelatory experience is reminiscent, likens himself to the prophets of the Old Testament without hiding behind the pseudonym of one of them as the other apocalyptic writers do. Another difference between Jewish apocalyptic writers and John is the time and place of composition and the recipients. It is practically impossible to determine when and where and to whom the Jewish apocalypses were written and under what circumstances their authors lived. By contrast, John is open and direct when he forms informs his readers that he was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God, a time of persecution and exile. In addition, the first three chapters of Revelation not only identify the recipients by place names, but they even describe the circumstances that allude to a possible date. Problems relating to theological emphases that touch on Internal evidence are discussed in the introductory section on theology. Although there are insignificant, there are significant difficulties with respect to the content of Revelation, I conclude on the basis of nearly solid external evidence and helpful internal evidence that the Apostle John is the author of the Apocalypse. And all people said... Amen. Thank you. At least I have some support. We now go on to time, place, and setting. Scholars have defended either an early or a late date for the composition of the Apocalypse. Early dating is in the mid-60s and late dating in the mid-90s. The early period would, would reflect the persecutions Christians endured during the time of Nero's reign, 40, uh, 64 to 68. The later period would mirror the last years of Domitian, 95 to 96. Proponents of early and late dating for Revelation marshal the evidence they have gleaned from both external and internal sources. In other words, what writers of the first few centuries say about the dating of Revelation and what the book itself indicates about a possible date of composition. So now we go first to the external sources. A primary source for information is Irenaeus. Approximately the date is 185, 90 years after John wrote, who had been a disciple of Polycarp, who in turn was a disciple of the Apostle John. Irenaeus served as bishop in Lyon, southern France, and wrote vol voluminously in defense of the Christian faith. Commenting on the Apocalypse with reference to the name of the beast, 13 verse 18, he writes, quote, We will not, however, incur the risk of pronouncing positively as to the name of Antichrist. 
For if it were necessary that his name should be distinctly revealed in the present time, it would have been announced by him who beheld the apocalyptic vision. For that was seen no very long time since, but almost in our day towards the end of the mission's reign. End of quote. <clears throat> the text is preserved in Latin by Irenaeus and in Greek by Eusebius. In both the Latin and the Greek text, the subject of the verb was seen is lacking and has to be provided. Did Irenaeus mean that the apocalypse was seen or did he intend to say that John the writer of Revelation was seen? Some supporters of the early date for the apocalypse stressed that the subject of the verb is John. They argue on the basis of context that it is more logical to denote the writer than the writing as a leading subject. They claim that Eusebius facilitates their choice by quoting twice from, a, from Irenaeus, first, as these things are so, and the number is found in all the approved and ancient copies, and those who saw John face to face confirm it, and, second, for it was seen not long time, not long ago, but almost in our generation toward the end of the reign of Domitian. End of quote. They conclude that in these quotes, the verb to see must have the same referent, so that not the apocalypse, but John is the subject of this verb. Thus the apostle was seen in the last years of Domitian, while the apocalypse had been in circulation for almost three decades. We continue. The context of these passages in Irenaeus and Eusebius, however, shows that both authors had in mind the book and not the apostle. Irenaeus devotes an entire chapter, chapter 30, to the number and the name of the Antichrist, Revelation 13, 18. And in the course of his discussion, he writes, For that which was seen no very long time since, but almost in our day toward the end of the mission's reign. This sentence is an explanation of the preceding one that ends with the expression, Apocalyptic vision. Consequently, the subject is the same in both sentences. And Eusebius, noting the great cruelty of Domitian's persecution and the banishment of the Apostle John to Patmos, mentions the Apocalypse and then quotes the above-mentioned words of Irenaeus. The context of these words in the writings of both Irenaeus and Eusebius intimates that not John but Revelation is the subject. Next, Domitian's name is absent from the writings of Clement of Alexandria and Origen. When they mention John's banishment to Patmos, Clement says that John, who was exiled to Patmos, returned to Ephesus after the death of the tyrant. And Origen states, the emperor of the Romans, as tradition teaches, condemned John to the island of Patmos. Advocates of the early date of Revelation claim that the words tyrant and emperor point not to Domitian but to Nero. They conclude that external tradition can only say with certainty that John was exiled to Patmos when he composed the Apocalypse but not when he wrote it. Because of indefinite statements from the writers in the 2nd and 3rd centuries, so the proponents of the early date assert the evidence for the dating of Revelation seems to favor the time of Nero's persecutions. But in the 4th century, both Eusebius and Jerome write that John was banished to Patmos during the time of Domitian. And Eusebius, who quotes Clement of Alexandria, quote, For after the death of the tyrant, he, the Apostle John, passed from the island of Patmos to Ephesus, end of quote. He mentions Domitian by name 
in the same chapter. Before Irenaeus wrote against heresies, approximately 185, a Christian historian named Hegesippus, in the middle of the second century, composed the book Five Memoirs. Only fragments of this work have been preserved by Eusebius and are reflected in the following statements that feature the, the term story and are attributed to Hegesippus. Here they are. The first is this. At this time, the story goes, the apostle and evangelist John was still alive and was condemned to live in the island of Patmos for his witness to the divine word. <clears throat> now the second statement. After Domitian had reigned 15 years, Nerva succeeded. Years 96-98. The sentences of Domitian were annulled and the Roman Senate decreed the return of those who had been unjustly banished and the restoration of their property those who committed the story of those times to writing related. <clears throat> At that time, too, the story of the ancient Christians relates that the Apostle John, after his banishment to the island, took up his abode at Ephesus. Now, there you have information from an early date. I quote Waller, H.J. Lawler, who wrote Eusebania, Essays on the Ecclesiastical History of Eusebius Pamphili, and so on. Lawler concludes, quote, But if the two passages referred to are really from Hegesippus, we have this testimony that St. John the Apostle was banished to Patmos and the Domitian and resided at Ephesus under Nerva. That is to say, he must be added to the small band of early witnesses to the late date and apostolic authorship of the Apocalypse. And this is full of significance. End of quote. Hegesippus who was born probably around 110, so this is 15 years after John wrote the Apocalypse, provides no evidence that John wrote the Apocalypse before the destruction of Jerusalem. And that effectively rules out a late, an early date, and effectively proposes the late date. I continue, even though authors in the early centuries were not as precise as we would expect them to be, we cannot say that the evidence points overwhelmingly in the direction of an early date. On the contrary, there is important evidence for a late date. Indeed, traditional late dating is a conceivable option that is further strengthened by the internal evidence of the apocalypse. The preceding program has been brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary and may not be reproduced or disseminated in part or in whole for sale or for profit without expressed written consent. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu.